All right. Um, we're in Galatians 4 this morning, starting in verse 8, and we'll go to the end. But you know, everybody wants to be free. This concept of freedom, everyone's like, you know, I, I really want to be free. So I'm going to tell you about two different people, and I want you to tell me who's more free, all right? First, we got John. John is a workaholic. He works about 70 hours a week and is rarely home with his family. When he is home with his family, he's usually sipping on on some alcoholic beverage and drinks way too much. Um, He's also been having an affair for about two years now. Okay, there's John. Joe... Joe prays daily at meals with his family. He reads a chapter in his Bible every day. He listens to Christian music on the radio. He goes to church regularly and sometimes serves when it's needed. But he's joyless, he's anxious, and he's depressed because he's just going through those Christian motions. Who's more free, John or Joe? Paul's going to tell us this morning in Galatians, that they're both equally in slavery. Neither of them is more free than the other. Idolatry, whether it's in the form of good Christian-y things or in the form of, of what we usually think of with idols, like, like drunkenness and, and drugs and that sort of thing, they, they're both toxic. So let's, let's open up God's word. Let's look, starting in verse 8. Galatians 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Let's just stop right there. A little little background of Galatians, if you haven't been around. Two main people groups. You got these Jewish Christians called the Judaizers, and they're teaching the Gentile Christians that you need to be circumcised and you need to keep the law in order to be a true follower of Jesus. And these people weren't denying that Jesus died and rose again. They were just adding requirements to being saved. And then you have the Gentile Christians. This is who Paul is calling out in this passage and in most of Galatians. He's calling them out for believing these Judaizers, that they have to keep this law. And Paul's main message is that good works can't save you, so quit living like it. That's essentially what he's saying to the Gentile Christians in Galatia. And he continues this message right here. So today I'm actually going to focus a lot on application, because Paul's saying essentially what he said throughout this whole book. So I want to make it really applicable and really personal this morning. And then we can start to see what this problem is here, 2017 Boone, Iowa. So basically, we need to avoid two rumble strips of slavery. That's what Paul is saying. So we see in verse 8, one of them is, uh, is the slavery to idolatry. They literally worshipped idols, man-made, wooden, gold idols. Okay? Um, They also worshipped idols that are common today, such as sex, money, possessions, power, control. Now, what's worship? I'm talking a lot about worship. Worship simply is worth-ship. It's giving something more worth than you give God. That's what worship is. And all of these idols left them empty and coming back for more. They weren't satisfying. They were enslaved. They were trapped. They were hopelessly addicted to these idols. 
They were trusting something besides God to save them and to satisfy them. And Paul's saying, this was the crummy, purposeless life you had before you knew God. And if this is you this morning, I encourage you to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus today. Find true hope. Find true joy. But there's two rumble strips of slavery. What do I mean by rumble strips? Well, look at this picture with me. So you ever drive down a road where there's a rumble strip in the middle and also on the side? It's the worst, okay? Even when you're wide awake, it's like you're just white knuckling going, okay, I can't, hit. oh, I got it again. It, you just feel cramped, even, in, even if you have a little car. I don't know. Somehow, I, maybe I'm just a bad driver. I don't know. Do we have that picture? No, just kidding. You guys, you guys know what I'm talking about. You can see it in your head. So um, one rumble strip, let's just call it the middle one, is what we think of when we think of idolatry, okay? Things like sex, money, possessions, power, control. The other rumble strip is idolatry to religion. Let's keep reading in verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul's talking about being slaves to the idolatry of religion. What's the idolatry of religion? That's trusting something that's meant to help you worship Jesus to save you and to satisfy you. Something that's meant to help you worship Jesus, to save you and to satisfy you. Something that wasn't meant to satisfy you. Something that wasn't meant to save you. Hey, by the way, church-going people, reading your Bible in and of itself does not save you. A lot of us have placed the Bible above God in our lives. Reading the Bible above God. That's the idolatry of religion. Slavery to dead religious works is just as horrible as worshiping more common idols. Verse 10, it says they're still observing these holidays of the law. And most of them pointed to Jesus. Okay, take for example the Day of Atonement. Hello? The Day of Atonement is to celebrate or this, this time where all the sins are cast onto this goat and then it's sent out in the wilderness. And then they also slaughtered another goat to symbolically take care of the sins of the people. So basically, they're celebrating the Day of Atonement and going, yeah, you know, Jesus, you dying on the cross and getting slaughtered wasn't enough, so we're going to keep celebrating that. That's what was going on. The Galatians were trying to earn God points, so to speak, instead of trust God for their salvation. And this is a lot like Abraham and Sarah. They did the same thing. So if you'll, if you'll skip the middle section for a second, we'll come back to that and look at verse 21 with me. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do not listen to the law. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Verse 28, Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Just as at that time he, was, he who was born in the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What's going on here? Lots of references to the Old Testament. This is a rather difficult chunk of scripture to understand in Galatians. But I'm just going to try, try to boil it down for you. Paul's saying, look what happened to Abraham and Sarah. You can, you can see this in Genesis 16 and 17 if you want to look at it later. But Abraham was promised a family as numerous as the stars. And guess what? His wife wasn't having any kids. So naturally, Abraham and Sarah are going, okay, God, um, we're getting pretty old and we don't have any kids. I don't know how you're going to come through on this promise. So they took it into their own hands. And so one of their servants, Hagar, this is Sarah's idea, the wife. Hey, Abraham, why don't, why don't you sleep with Hagar so that we can have a child and God's promise can be fulfilled? They took the matter into their own hands. A lot like dead works, a lot like us trying to save ourselves. Okay, they took the matter into their own hands. But God wouldn't have it. And finally, God miraculously gave Abraham and Sarah a child, Isaac. And Paul is saying, trying to save yourself never works. In fact, it's destructive. It's not trusting me, and it's making light of the cross of Jesus Christ. You must trust God's promise that he's made through Christ, not take it into your own hands like Abraham and Sarah did. There's just the, the nutshell, the, the, the really bare bones version of what those verses are saying. But I'd like to go back to verses 10 and 11. It says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. David Platt, author of Radical, which is a great book that I recommend, by the way, he said in talking about this passage, he said, it would be like Paul saying to us this morning, you go to church, you sing songs, and you pray your prayers, and you study your book, and you go through all of these motions thinking that by doing these things, you have favor before God. By doing these things, you're making yourselves right before God. Paul would say to us, you're no different than the Muslims around the world who are worshiping in mosques this week. No difference. They're checking off their boxes to try to make themselves right before God. And you're checking off your boxes trying to make yourself right before God. And there's no difference. You say, well, I pray. Big deal. Muslims pray. Probably more times a day than most of us. You say, well, I worship. I go to worship. Big deal. Hindus worship. They worship all day long. You say, well, I study, I read the Bible. So do Jehovah's Witnesses. They know it better than most of us in this room. You say, well, I go on missions trips. So do Mormons. Scores of them commit years of their lives to go on mission trips. Not for a week, for a couple of years. 
we are a lot like the Galatians. We do all of these things to try to earn favor with God when we already have His favor because of what His Son did on the cross. Now, all of those things I just mentioned are great. But if they're the end, if the end isn't to worship God and to fall more in love with Jesus, they're worthless. It's the idolatry of religion. The idolatry of religion is not just in other religions or other denominations. It's right here, alive and well, at Stonebridge Church. So I want to give a couple examples of things that I think a lot of us in this room struggle with when it comes to the idolatry of religion. The first one, I think, is worship music. When we have our intro to Stonebridge class or our membership classes, I ask, hey, what made you stick? What, what do you really like about Stonebridge Church? You know what almost everybody says? The worship music. And I agree, it's fantastic. Shane, you do a great job, and everyone who's involved. It's awesome. But I asked people who are involved in leading worship in our church to describe the engagement of our people in worship. Here's what they said. They said stoic. They said it's like a wall. They said they know who the new people are because they're actually engaging in worship. Their words, not mine. Have you made an idol of contemporary energetic music in worship? Have you made an idol of biblically sound cross-centered songs in worship? It seems like a lot of our people are just coming and checking off the list that I did that. You're saying, look, God, look, friends, I didn't just go to church today. I went to a church that has amazing worship. Check that out. And God's not impressed. I know, you know, we have a great, engaging, God-honoring worship environment here. However, it's just like doing good works to be saved if you don't engage in it yourself if you don't engage your heart to worship the God who that, the, the worship style is all about, who those songs are all about. So how do we escape the slavery of idolatry of religion in corporate worship? We live free from this idolatry through relationship with God. Relationship with God. Look at the beginning of verse 9 with me again. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. Let's just stop right there. That is a, a rich, powerful statement. We, don't, we not only know God, okay? Which is pretty cool. It's pretty cool that we get to know God. And this isn't simply knowing about them, right? I know about Tom Cruise, okay? But Shane, I know Shane. He is my friend. We're in relationship, okay? I know all about Tom Cruise, but I know Shane. But he doesn't stop there. Yes, we know God in personal relationship, but he corrects himself. He says, or rather, to be known by God. God knows you. He's more committed, faithful, and invested in your relationship with God than you are. 
If you remember in, in Galatians 1, we were talking about how salvation is from God. It's through God and it's, it's to God. So freedom from dry, heartless, works-based religion is relationship. Why? Because there's so much security. You're operating out of love instead of fear. Think of a healthy marriage, okay? If you, if you have a healthy marriage, you don't buy flowers or get gifts or serve your spouse because you're afraid they're going to divorce you. That's not how healthy marriages work. You do it because you love them. You don't think, oh man, if I don't buy, I don't think, oh, if I don't buy Heather flowers today, she's going to divorce me. I don't, I've never had that thought, okay? And now I know there's broken relationships out there where that's, it's like that, but I, my guess is that most of, most of them in this room are not like that. It's because you love them, because you're in love. And it certainly requires work, time, and thoughtfulness in a marriage relationship and in a relationship with God. But that secure relationship sets me free to love and serve my wife like I never have before. And it should be the same in our relationship with God. That's what living free means. It means we're living in love and not in fear. So back to worship. Physical expression in worship comes really naturally when you love Jesus more than you love a worship style. And physical expression dies naturally in worship when you love a worship style more than you love Jesus. Now don't get me wrong. I know that there are a few people in the room who just aren't that expressive. Okay? Um, When you talk naturally, you don't do what I'm doing right now without thinking about it. Okay? You, you do. And even when you're at football games or whatever, you're just, you're just, yay, you know, that's good. That's fine. That's cool. If that's your personality, great. I know everyone's personality isn't like that in here, though. So why is it described as a wall and as stoic? It has to do with our hearts. Okay? I'm not saying you have to be physically expressive in worship to be engaged in worship with God. You don't. Absolutely not. It's all about your heart. You could be standing there motionless and be really connected with God in your heart. But chances are, if you're really in love with Jesus, you're just going to naturally start to express it, not just in corporate worship here, but throughout your life. One of my professors in seminary, Dr. Tom Niehoff, said, we get down on Catholics, but at least they're doing something. They're kneeling, they're standing, they're speaking up, They're not just sitting there, sucking on their coffee, being entertained. Is that us? Uh, Bob Coughlin, who uh, is my go-to person for anything on on corporate worship leading, um, said it really well, and I think he'll do a better job than I. So let's just take a couple minutes. The video quality is really poor. I apologize, but it doesn't matter. Just really listen. It's, It's the words that matter. So check this out. Bob, do you want to follow up on that at all with uh, regard to the aspect of using your body in worship? I mean, lots of people, the idea of raising your hands lifted high when you're singing would be very uncomfortable. Um, I think you touched on that briefly, but do you want to say anything more about that? Sure. (laughs) I recognize we have a diverse group here, but that's okay. I think if we just look at Scripture, I think we begin with with what God desires, how God desires to be praised and what pleases Him. 
That's where we begin. And the question, I was having a conversation with Mark Dever a few years ago. Mark Dever is a very formal, wonderful man of God, uh, pastor of uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. And just ask, challenging Mark a little bit and asked him, because Mark would not be the most physically expressive guy in corporate worship, and yet, yet a man of God, theologically brilliant, loves the gospel, loves the church. And I said, Mark, what about this? Is there, what, if, what if I would say to you, is there any, any physical action in Scripture that God says pleases him, raising hands, kneeling, dancing, bowing, uh, shouting? If, if there's any of those that you've never done, wouldn't it be a good, good question to ask why not? He said, yeah, that's a good question. So, so that's the question. <laughs> that was it. That's the question that, that I would ask you if, if uh, you know, there are certain physical expressions, biblical physical expressions, that you've never done. I'd say, why not? Why not? So that's where I'd start. In a gathering, I think many of us struggle with this self-awareness as though everybody in the room is really looking at us. It's, it's ludicrous. It's crazy. But that's, that's the human heart. That's the desire for our own glory, desire for our own praise. Um, I think it's good just to acknowledge it as sin and confess it and say, well, Jesus, that's why you died. You died because I love my own glory. Even now, I'm supposed to be praising you. All I can think about is if anybody's looking at me and I can't shake it. Thank you for dying for this sin. And then I think of the expulsive power of a new affection, Thomas Chalmers. I think you just, you just mentioned that. The, the idea of, of, of directing your, your love somewhere else rather than yourself. And the thing that's been most helpful for me is to just to think about the words we're singing. Just to ponder them, to do everything I can to make myself engage with them, to think, this is true, this is reality, this is why I live, this is why I was created. And you know, when I start doing that, well, it's like I'm doing now. I start moving. I, I'm not thinking about what I'm doing. Oh, I'll put my hand here. Oh, I'll, I'll change hands and I'll put it here. I'm just doing it because I, I want you to get this. And when I am thinking about how great the Savior is, and what he did for me. And how glorious God the Father is. And how the Father has sent his spirit through the Son to, to live in me. I, I, just, I just have to respond some way. And sometimes that, that will be kneeling. So it's often just lifting my hand and say, thank you. Or I need you. And you know, at that point, I could care less what people are thinking about me. It's not my concern, because my third thought is, I want to do with my body whatever makes Jesus Christ look glorious. If someone observes me, I want them to be able to say, he or she knows a great Savior. Not an okay Savior. Not an average Savior. Not a Savior that you can kind of take your leave. I want them to be able to tell from my countenance, Psalm 34, 5, those who look to him are radiant, their faces will never be ashamed. I want them to know from my body that this is what I was created for, 
to bring glory, not just in this setting, but as an expression of my life as a whole, to bring glory and honor and praise and worship and adoration to the one who is absolutely worthy. And when I think that way, I think, I think expressiveness just flows more naturally. Uh, if it's not something that's normal to us, we may have to do it at home just to get used to it. But I think if we're thinking the right thoughts about the glory of Jesus Christ, uh, physical expression really does come more naturally. He said, I want people to tell from my body that I know a great Savior, not an okay Savior. Again, certainly some of you are more expressive naturally than others. But if you are and you're not in corporate worship, why would be a great question to wrestle with this week. Everyone is expressive to some degree about what they love. Don't tell me you're not. Okay? What happens when your son or daughter scores a touchdown or or a goal? You just stand there? I doubt it. Has corporate worship become another thing to check off your list? Has it become a way of trying to earn favor with God? Or maybe the idol behind the idol is the idol of reputation, fear of people. I invite you, I encourage you to live free and shake off the chains of slavery to the fear of people and live free during worship. Okay, done with that. I know I stepped on a lot of people's toes. What other idols of religion do we have? I think praying before meals. Now, I want to say I've done this my whole life. Okay, I grew up in a family. We prayed before meals. We still do it at my house. But has it become so sacred that you don't feel right with God when you don't do it? That's when it's become an idol. Has it become mindless, heartless tradition to appease God? Do you, you just feel horrible? Oh, man, I didn't pray. Do you say the same things every time you pray at the meals without thinking much about it? That's how it was in my home growing up. I don't know my dad's heart or my mom's heart when they were praying. I'm just saying, when you repeat something over and over and over and over, it tends to get kind of dry and, and worthless. So how do we escape the slavery of idolatry of religion in meal prayers? Same way, live free through relationship with God. Remind yourself before you pray at your meal of verse 9 here, that God knows me and I know Him. Think about who you're praying to before you pray. That alone will change it up. Let Scripture, let other things that God's showing you and doing in your life seep into your prayers Try changing it up. Try praying after a meal sometimes. My theory is that you're probably more grateful after you eat it anyway. So there's my two thoughts, my two cents there. Anything you do routinely to grow closer to Jesus could easily turn into the slavery of religion. So be really vigilant. Comb through your life. What are those things that I'm just doing mindlessly that initially were to worship Jesus, but now I'm just doing them? Maybe it's giving financially to your church 
my dad set a great example for me and I'm not following it and should change it. I, I'm feeling convicted even this morning. So my dad told me, I don't, you know, I don't set up automatic withdrawal to give to the church because then I, I, I don't have to think about it. My heart doesn't have to engage and go, yeah, I'm, I want to give joyfully to God of my money. So he would write out a check physically. So that was a cool way. Not, not, not that you can't set up online giving regularly. I mean, just put a reminder in your phone then to, to praise God and, and spend some time making that an act of worship. Bible reading. You know, you're just doing it to check it off the list. Prayer can easily become this way. Listening to Christian music can become this way. Even serving in the church, even me preaching this morning could become something that I just do to check it off the list. So remember, the remedy for idolatry of religion is relationship. Remind yourself of the finished work of Jesus, what we were singing about earlier. Think about how much he loves you. Let that bring security. Let that bring freedom. Paul lived out the importance of relationship over dead religion with the Galatians. Okay, so check this out. Verse 12 to 20. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. So, Paul is relational with these Galatians. He's not religious. He doesn't give them a formula. Okay, you need to trust in Jesus, then you need to form a church, and then you guys need to pray and do this and this and this. No. He says, instead, look at Jesus. He says, I love you, brothers and sisters. I love you like a father loves his children because I've been loved by the Father. Look at this. Look at verse 12. He calls them brothers. Down in 14, you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Okay, the Galatians were were treating Paul Almost like they treat Jesus. That's how much love. That's how much relationship is going on here. Verse 15. If possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's relational. That's not checking off a list. That's love. 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He really cares about them. Even amidst trial, we see in verse 13, Paul had some sort of bodily ailment. We don't know what that is. But he was going through a really hard time when he brought the gospel to the Galatians. You don't check things off your list when you're sick. Okay? You you don't check things off the list 
when you're going through a hard time. You throw your list out the window if you're anything like me. But Paul loved them so much. He's like, yeah, this is really hard, but I'm going to tell you the most important news that you could ever hear, even though it's really difficult right now. That is love. That is not duty. That's delight. He's relational and he's not selfish. He says in verse 17, he's talking about these Judaizers who are trying to deceive him. They're just trying to, they're just trying to get selfish attention. They're trying to say, you aren't following the law well enough, but we are. Look at us. And Paul's saying, that's, you know that's not me. I care deeply about you. You've seen that. You know that. Paul's setting an example and saying, hey, live in freedom through real, genuine, vibrant, alive relationship with Jesus. Because that's the example I set for you. We had real and still have real, vibrant, alive relationship. Not a list of do's and don'ts. Galatians 5 verse 1, which we'll go into depth in next week. But it says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Wouldn't it be cool is if people walked into our church and whether they knew Jesus or not, let's just say someone who walks off the street who's never even heard the name of Jesus and they walk into our church and they go, man, I've been looking for freedom and these people are free. I don't even know what that means necessarily, but these people have it, and I want that. These people aren't about uh, fighting over the color of the carpet. These people aren't about making an idol of, of this or that. They, they really are in love with this God that they're worshiping. I'm intrigued. I want to know more about this. Wouldn't it be cool if our church was marked by freedom? That freedom would just reign in this place. We're not perfect people. Free people aren't perfect people. But they're truly free. And they're truly living. They're living in vibrant relationship with Jesus. Because they know how much they've been loved. They look to the cross daily, regularly, and see how much they've been loved. And then can't help but let that spill out into their lives. So I invite you, this week, live free from the idolatry of religion. Look through your life. What things have I made an idol of that in the beginning I meant to worship Jesus with? And pretty soon there'll be an aroma around here of freedom that's irresistible. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that we can be free of all idols in our lives, not just the ones we think of right away, the ones we even wrongfully call more sinful in our hearts. So I pray that this morning you would just forgive us for sinfully making an idol out of things that were meant to worship you, of prayer, of Bible reading, of worship, whatever it is, God. And you know, we all know those things in our lives that have just become dry and stale. 
bring life to them through real relationship with you, God, and set us free by your grace, God. In Jesus' name, amen.